This week on Rebel Matters, I sat down with music producer Peter Parr to discuss the importance of art in our modern society and the challenges that come with building a successful career in an industry that's off the beaten path in relation to more conventional career paths. I also have another Rebel Matters first for all you lovely listeners out there. Today, we're going to close out the episode with a new song that has over 300,000 views online, has been banned from television and radio, and despite this has picked up several awards in the last few weeks. Straight from the streets of West Belfast, stay tuned to the end to hear Irish language rap trio Kneecap and their very first release, Charta. Peter is a composer, director and sound designer from Waterford based in Cork. He's director of Eat My Noise, a multi-genre audio collective that work in composition, events, film, television and post-production. Currently, Peter is artist-in-residence in the National Sculpture Factory, was awarded the 2017 Arts Council of Ireland Music Bursary Award and the 2018 Arts Council of Ireland Music Project Award. He's member of the Committee of the Irish Society of Stage and Screen Designers and currently holds the position of Media and Outreach Officer. I was very interested to chat with Peter as I feel that the arts are easily and often overlooked in the busy and distracted lives that we lead today. And I personally feel that it's very important that we don't lose touch with this crucial aspect of our culture. To find out more about Peter and his recent work, you can check out his website with the details in the show notes. But for now, I sit back and enjoy my broad-ranging chat with Peter Parr. Part of the motivation behind starting the Rebel Matters podcast was to promote the unique personal training facility that I opened in 2013, Ackley. And as we're talking about music and the arts in this episode, it's worth mentioning that we have an absolute abundance of artists, musicians and actors training with us at Ackley. This often leads me to ask myself why people who work in the arts are drawn to us to help them with their personal training. Firstly, I think that the efficient style of training that we have makes sense to anyone who appreciates the fact that they can come in for a training session and be guided through a 60-minute session from start to finish by an experienced coach. Secondly, the learning and creative element to our training is an attractive prospect for anyone who's used to spending their time getting better at things and learning new skills as a result of the investment of their time. For sure, there's a learning curve involved in getting to grips with our training, and as our members move through the learning curve, they become more skilled, more proficient in the movements and techniques, and thus become stronger, more mobile, and more pain-free as a result. Last but not least, anyone who works in a problem-solving or creative environment generally values the sense of intrinsic enjoyment that comes from their choosing career or pursuit. This is something that we instill in all of our training programs and coaching. As opposed to taking part in a monotonous and boring exercise class, our sessions are designed for maximal results and enjoyment from start to finish. If you're interested in coming on board as a personal training member at Ackley, go to aclai.ie, ackley.ie, and book yourself in for a 20-minute complimentary consultation at a time that suits your schedule. During your consultation, we can go through your goals, establish a strong plan to achieve them, and get you started as soon as possible.
You have an honours degree in biochemistry and a master's in computers. So my first question to you is, what brought you into the music world? Well, my master's is actually in composition and uh, what the tagline was electronics, but uh, we did a lot of computer work in it. Um, what, brought, what brought me into music? Uh, well, I, um, I, started, I started choral singing very young. Uh, I, was in, I went to a school called Newtown primary which is actually now gone it was a Quaker school in Waterford and uh, private school um, and uh, I started with a music teacher called Anne Barry who sent me uh, started getting me piano lessons as well um, and my piano teacher at the time uh, we had no piano in my house so I couldn't ever practice which my piano teacher didn't know so I was uh, showing up to like I was going to piano lesson once a week with no practice done. And so eventually the piano teacher got on to my parents and she said, uh, your son has no musical talent. There's no point in him coming to these lessons anymore. And uh, my, my choir teacher, uh, Anne Barry, um, was very dismayed by this. And so she did the opposite and encouraged me to stay in it. And so I kind of started music then, um, but mainly singing uh, and as a small bit of piano. I then kind of, when I left Newtown, um, because my parents, we just couldn't afford to send me to the second, the second level. It was too expensive. It kind of it was like tripled in price. And at the time, my father had taken a redundancy, so we really didn't have the money we had had before. So I went to a, this public school called De La Salle. And De La Salle uh, has a kind of an, a, a huge musical reputation in the country, um, primarily to do with a man called uh, Brother Ben. Uh, uh, and... Then below him, then other music teachers like Pamela Harrison and uh, and so forth. And the music, the kind of music thing was huge there. So when I got there, I kept doing choir because they had this. They had a competitive choir that did very well nationally. And I remember my father saying to me, "Well, uh, do you want to do anything else besides sing?" And I was like, "Well, I might as well go back to piano, or I might as well do something." And I ended up in a Barrick Street band which a lot of people do, like brass bands, you know, they're kind of all over and they're brilliant community projects and, you know, you get your instrument for free and all that kind of thing. Or at least that used to be the case. And so I started playing cornet, which is like a kind of a higher trumpet. Uh, hated it. Um, then asked to play trumpet, played trumpet for a little while, equally hated that. And then kind of by proxy was handed a clarinet. Um, and this is when I was around 13-ish, 13, 14, you know. And uh, I also started playing guitar because my mother is uh, is a singer. She was a touring singer. Uh, she's travelled all, all over the world singing and, you know, she's on television loads and she's released albums and all that. There was always guitar in the house. But weirdly, my mother never asked me to play it or pressured me. There was actually quite the opposite in energy in the house. My mother was very cautious about any of us getting involved in music, you know, um, particularly professionally. Um, and I started playing guitar and playing clarinet. And then one thing led to another and I kind of had, it seemed like I had a fairly natural aptitude for clarinet and I flew through my grades. Um, there's things called grades you do in kind of performance. Uh, there's like eight of them. And uh, I did the eight grades in about two years and then uh, kind of accidentally auditioned. I didn't know what it was at the time because I had a brilliant clarinet, clarinet teacher called Stephen Mackey who was like basically had this genius way of making me work without me realizing I was working because I really didn't like, I didn't like music being, uh, so I didn't like it being difficult. It used to annoy me if it was difficult, you know. Um, and he got me to apply for this thing that turned out to be the National Youth Orchestra, which I didn't know what that was, to be quite frank. 
and uh, I did an audition and I got in and that, that, that would have been at the time quite a big deal because like, I mean, you were essentially, you know, you'd auditioned against the best people in the country, you know? And, uh, so I got into the National Youth Orchestra and then it's just so, and then between the choir singing and like the way that our school, De La Salle, held up the musicians, we were held in quite high regard and it was treated with equal reverence to sport, which is not very common in, in big schools, particularly in all boys schools. And there was a kind of a, even in the school itself, there was a massive reverence among the students for the musicians. So it wasn't just us that thought it, it was like, or that the teachers had thought it, it was that we thought it. And so sport and music were like these pursuits of excellence. So when you have, and then uh, above me, a few of my uh, like musician friends who were older had had not only gone on, gone on to get into the youth orchestra, but then they'd gone on to get into the, uh, the adult version of it. And then that one of our students uh, had gotten into the the, inter- the European version of it. And then they were all traveling to the UK to study. So there was kind of a, a clear path in our school. It was, you, you, you could see a potential career because it, it was talked about a lot. And so, I, it just clicked with me when I was around 16 that I just suddenly realized I was in a competitive choir. I was learning guitar. I was in bands singing songs and everyone was telling me, it's so amazing, your song is so amazing. And I was playing clarinet um, and I, it just seemed obvious. I was just going to do music, like what, you know, I, I obviously. And, you know, you go to a career guidance counselor and he'd say like, oh, so what, what do you want to be? And I'd say, I'd love to be a musician. And he'd go, no, you want to be a civil engineer. That's what you want to be. <laughs> is that how you ended up doing the biochemistry? Well, this is, it led to this. So yeah, so kind of basically I, um, I went away and I auditioned in, in England. And uh, unfortunately, one or two things kind of conspired against me. I discovered it a bit of a fear of flying on the way over, which I didn't know. And uh, I had been given the wrong syllabus to, pract- to practice. So, and I hadn't done enough work on, on some of the scale stuff. Cause I was a little bit sort of like, you know, when you know you're good at something and you think they'll just get, you'll get by like, and I went over and I did the audition and, uh, I mean, it was very strange. The auditions are kind of in two halves. One is the performance side and the other one is like the technical side and the performance side. I mean, I could see I had basically gotten in on the performance side, but unfortunately my technical side went so badly. Like, I mean, at one point I remember saying like, I just don't know what that is. Like, you know, and I mean, in the middle, and when you're auditioning for a college like the Royal Northern or like the Royal Academy, you just can't say things like that. So they were like, look, uh, we're not sure, you know, would you maybe come back in a year or um, we think you've got it. You just need, there's a couple of things you need to round off. And I was just, unfortunately, I'm not really used to failing, you know, and I was young and I was an idiot and I just quit. I never played the clarinet again. I put it under my bed, broke my parents' heart. And uh, how I ended up in biochem is, and this is the genuine truth, and I've always tell this and no one really seems to believe me. I used to really like biology in school and I really liked chemistry in school. And I had been do- studying for my GCSEs because I was going to the UK. So I had really not been focusing on my leaving search at all. And I didn't understand the CAO form. So you did GCSEs? I was, I was just, I was studying for them. I never, I never got to, I never really went to do them because I was, you know, basically kind of, you know, rejected. And, uh, the, so I didn't really understand the leaving cert very well. And I, I kind of, um, I had, we had done our pre's, remember pre's and. I didn't do the leaving cert, so I don't oh, know. Oh, so you did, you, you did GCSEs? Yeah, I okay. did So I, 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 we do like, there's a pre-test for the leaving cert that's done within the school 
And the school essentially does a, a mock leaving search and you practice how to do the leaving search. And our leaving search are marked out at 600 points, um, 100 points per subject. And you pick the best six subjects that you have, you know, and uh, I got 50 points in my pre. I mean, I failed everything. And because I just didn't care, like I was just like, whatever, you know, I mean, it was embarrassing stuff. A 50 out of 600? 50 out of 600, yeah. So you can imagine, like we're talking about uh, bottom of the barrel stuff. And, but this is before my audition. Then I did my audition and then I came back and I realized I better, better, I better get my shit together pretty quickly. So uh, I had the CAO form and I saw a thing called biochemistry. I had no idea what it was. I had, I, at this point, I refused to talk to my career guidance counselors. So I didn't ask for advice on anything. And I thought the CAO form, you, when, you, when you write down on the CAO form, which is where you pick your subjects, there's 10 slots, if I remember correctly. And I just presumed it was, you wrote down 10 things you liked. So in no particular order, I wrote biochemistry, like, by, uh, by, uh, what was it, forensic science, psychology, you know, all of this mad stuff, because I'd refused to do music in Ireland. And the reason I'd been told, the reason I refused in Ireland, which is probably a controversial thing to say on a podcast, was that I'd gone for master classes on my instrument and they'd said that there was no, no one really in the country could teach me to perform to the level better than I was at at that point. So I needed to go away. So I, my attitude to music was, well, there's no point doing it in Ireland. And um, that's only particular for my instrument. It's not the case for all instruments. Um, and I wrote biochemistry first and then I forgot about it. Uh, and then I went, I did my leave search. I got, I think, I don't know what to get, 495 or 500 points, something like that. And not really having any use for any of them. And then I, the day came where people were getting their offers and I got the offer and it was biochem and cork. And I was like, oh, so I have to do the first thing. I was like, and I know you got your first offer. You should be, and I was like, or your first choice. And I was like, well, I didn't really think of it that way. And two weeks later, I was standing in Cork and I did biochem for four years. That is the only reason it happened. And if you were looking back now, if there was someone there who was 15, 16, who was very talented at music, was getting not the best advice from their guidance counselor mm. in terms of career prospects, what would you say to them now? I'd say to them, uh, Music, because you're, you're, you're teaching, you're essentially running in tandem with the, the national education system. So, you're, you know, a lot of people who learn music are doing it privately or, and is that it's okay to do your leaving cert, go away and, and do a, an audition and fail and take a year to just keep practicing and go back. It's not, it doesn't work. The pressure to push on. I, I look back sometimes with deep regret that I wish someone had said, it's okay to just take a year off, you know, get a part-time job and keep practicing and then go back because music doesn't really have that pre same pressure on it, you know. Now, I mean, also I would just say also practice more because then you wouldn't have to do that. But uh, I would say um, to a person who's interested in music as a career, I would, I mean, it's not an easy life. Um, it's deeply uh, insecure. Um and, and causes as a result insecurity in you. And I, but I would say if you love it, it's also really important to confront that and deal with it. And like, just, just talk to people, talk to people who are doing it. If there's any, like, you'd be really shocked if there's any musicians that you're really fond of, or, you know, you would be shocked how many of them would, if you wrote them emails or got in contact that they get back to you and give advice. Like most people are like, know that it's really, you know, when they hear someone that wants to do it, they're delighted to talk to someone about it, you know? 
And also just to go to your career guidance counselors and say, I don't care if you think I'm going to be a civil engineer. I don't want to be one. I want to be this and they tell me how to do it, you know? Yeah. <laughs> like, so fast forward to the present day where you're, you're in music full time, mm-hmm. you've established yourself quite well and you seem to be very busy. What are the pro- some of the projects that you've been involved in over the last few years? Um, I, I suppose uh, the main kind of body of my work was done under the name of a company, uh, or I suppose company is the wrong word for it, but uh, called Eat My Noise, which was kind of like a, a collective that we kind of approached music from a position of um, trying to blow out the experience of of, of people's uh, kind of uh, consumption of music. So we were kind of bored of music being kind of concert based, you know, this idea of you go and you sit in front of it and it happens in front of you and that's, and you have to kind of do the work. Um, we wanted to construct kind of experiences for people. Um, immerse people was, was a kind of trendy term for immersion, you know, this, uh, but really what it was is, the fundamental logic of it was that we, we just wanted people to come into a space and f- forget their lives for an hour, you know, that like literally like just shake them, you know. When I was doing a little <clears> bit of <throat> online stalking off you in the lead up to this podcast and on your about page on the website, which is, is it peterpar.ie's website? Yes. Uh, there was one statement that jumped out at me and it was to that you were pursuing extreme emotional arousal in your <laughs> show. And I was like, what, what is that? And... I was thinking, is that because we're so used to having more and more monotonous lifestyles from a day-to-day point of view? Like, just talk to talk about it a little bit. Um, that's that's a really. Um, it took me ages to find a term that that like that that kind of sounded like what I wanted to do, and also didn't sound kind of erotic. You know? <laughs> it was kind of a, it was very difficult to find a way to phrase it. But what it means really is like I think um, we're we we have a monotony in our lifestyles, I think, at the moment, but not through the fact that things are monotonous, but that we're just saturated. I think you, like we've we've there's too much input, and I think it's like when you eat too much sugar or you you know you eat too much salt, you get you but you just start to reject it and you, and you become numb to it. And I f- I found that like this is a frightening thing to say, but I found myself thinking as a musician who had grown up obsessing over music and listening to albums just without, like, I mean, it makes you sound old, but I remember just sitting in a room listening to an album that it wasn't enough anymore. Music on its own wasn't enough. You needed to kind of shake people. Like you really needed to like, like, like explode them out of themselves because we're so used to internalizing and sort of, uh, protecting ourselves from this, you know, all this people that want stuff from us, you know, commercialism is assaulting you at all points every day. You've got like television, phones, everything is wants something from you or is trying to give you something or convince you you want something. And the whole, the whole experience of that is you become sick and kind of numbed to it. And I found that like, I wanted to reach into people and kind of I had found these cathartic experiences in like being overwhelmed by the scale of things. So like orchestras I used to find would like just the size of the sound would change you, you know, and uh, equally intimacy can do that. Like silence can do that. But again, it's about the context. And so I, I, I just became obsessed with the idea of like, um, like uh, causing people to have extreme emotions. Like, and I mean like any direction, extreme happiness, extreme sadness, extreme, anything that would kind of just shake you awake for a second. Is that, 
one of the functions as such of the arts throughout the years. It always seems to be the artist who calls things out when things are going wrong or when something is there that people need to be aware of that maybe they're not aware of. Mm-hmm. It always seems to come back to the arts, poets, writers, like theatre, music. Is mm-hmm. that is that a core function of the arts as you see it? Yeah, the I would say the function of art in that regard is for people. It's about uh, the kind of the marriage of some kind of craft or ability you have, which is like either being a composer or a painter or a sculptor or, or a singer or whatever it is that you are, something something um, artistic, if whatever that again, like the looseness of that term, and you you are on the edge of things, you're on the outskirts of things, where you see where the friction of society are, where, 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 the, where, where the points of society aren't connecting. And you try to communicate those issues. Now, I don't think that, that doesn't mean I think all art has to be political. I, I don't think that at all. I think pol- a lot of art is political, um, but it doesn't need to be that. It, it needs to be someone trying to express something that is up to that point been inexpressible or unexpressible. And the function of art is to aid people in those uh, thoughts. So um, you create a conversation through a form that's never happened before. Comedy is a great example of that, where you take these really heavy issues, like really dark subjects, and you make people laugh at them. And in the moment that you laugh at something, you understand it, I think. I think that's the function. That's that's what laughing is. Is like, it's when you, when a truth is revealed, an unexpected truth, and you just kind of laugh. Because you just go, oh yeah. Or, you know, or it's, a, you know, obviously it can also be just tricks of where the cheap comedy is just, you know, not that. But high, high, you know, George, George Carlin comedy or, you know, Frankie Boyle comedy. I know some people are on the fence with him, but like, I think a lot of that is on the outskirts of things. And they're trying to make you think about things a different way. I think Brilliant Painting does the same thing. It makes you either confront your internal self or it makes you have to observe an external issue. Um, I think good music does the same thing. Um, they're kind of workouts for your intellectual and emotional uh, being. And, and they help you to understand things that you couldn't understand through conversation. I've been reading James Joyce's Dubliners recently. And right. actually, just reading through the introduction, there was a, he had a, it was a long process for him to get that book published because mm. of the fact that the publishers were sort of afraid to publish it because of what was in the book. And mm. I don't know if you've read it, but it's, it's a, it's a series of short stories about Dublin that are, they're fictional, but are somewhat based in his own experiences. And his outlook on it was, you need to publish this book. And if you're holding it back, you're actually stopping the advancement of, like sort of uh, the advancement of the society because they need this book so they can see themselves mm-hmm. because that's what it is. And that's, he was trying to kind of show, give them a mirror to themselves. And I mean, that's, that is the huge struggle of the arts in a weird way is that, uh, every, it's clearly a very powerful thing. And in one way, culturally, you have people mocking the arts as a kind of a luxury or an elitist pursuit. Um, and that's sort of this anti-intellectualism that's occurring now and this anti-reason period we're going through where anyone that's trying to do anything, you know, you know, it's all art wank or it's this, you know, it, it's, it's, you're, there's a constant need to undermine it or, you know, get a real job. I always laugh when someone says that to me and I'm like, I do 50 hours a week minimum. So you get a real job, actually, and I don't get paid properly for it. So th- this idea, um, and not, not I mean, it's, that's not to, to hold what I do over others, but I, you, you do think um, it, it, 
it is a dangerous time when the arts has to explain itself constantly or try to justify its value. And that story with James Joyce is no, is is still going on. You you have a very tense relationship culturally between the powers that allow art to occur, which are because artistic pursuits are inherently un, are not financially sound. I mean, that they're, they just can't be. They're, like, there's no metric for them to make money. If you think art's function is to make money, you're, you've completely missed the, the point of it. I mean, it's some of it can make money, and that's brilliant. But if, if you were to limit art simply by that, then what you're saying is, well, then we can never, we judge ourselves by what is profitable. And I mean, for that as an idea, as a, as a, as a, as a species is a terrifying thing, you know? So if someone comes up to you and says, here, Peter, get a real job. And if you decided not to take your shoe off and hit them on the head with it, <laughs> and you wanted to explain the benefit of the art, or the, of the arts or what value the arts brings, what would you say to that person? I would say, uh, if, uh, do you watch Netflix? Because if you do, you're looking at artists who write. And most of the people that wrote those scripts started somewhere where it wasn't profitable in schools with shitty literature programs where they were encouraged to write poetry and prose and they did that and then they go on to write maybe a couple of short films that are like also not funded you know videotaped by their friends on crappy cameras and then three or four years later they're making art pieces and then three or four three or four years later they're writing the scripts to narcos and it's like you <clears throat> you can't disconnect art from everything that you see like i mean so if you watch netflix i would say but if you watch netflix you believe in the arts if you buy an album you believe in the arts if you walk past this like a monument in town you believe in the arts if you look at a building and think it looks good you believe in the arts like it's that you've been they the essentially the powers that be have eroded the connection between uh what sometimes would be called high art which is like art that is literally like utterly financially impossible to ma maintain and like practical manifestations of day-to-day -day solutions to things. The arts and science are the same thing. They're, they're just literally different applications of, uh, you're putting uh, the same thought process on different pressure points. So like the arts put, puts those pressure points on things like literature or painting or poetry or, you know, or not even that, sometimes graphic design or architecture or engineering. These things are artistic, but science is similar to that. You just put those pressures on the body, the, the fabric of the universe. The, you're still taking curiosity and concern and you're putting them into where you find your, the, the greatest outcome for that question is. Art is a question. That's all it is really. And it's, and it, and it provides the act of asking is as important as the answers it gives. And I think people don't really, to kind of have to explain to people what art's for, I understand why that question comes up now. It's not a, I don't judge a person for thinking that way. We've been assaulted for 30 or 40 years where arts, the arts have been undermined. Like, and so there are a generation of people who are going, what the hell is it for? It just feels expensive. And so you can drink lattes and you know make crappy sculptures with your mates. And you're like, part of the arts is that. But that's no different to a guy in a 5,000 euro suit sitting in a room getting given a four and a half million, you know, startup venture capital loan to start a company that inherently bankrupts itself in three years. What, why is he more important? It, like, the, it's the illusion of employment, the illusion of, of financial gain that we've started to qualitate. The arts needs to justify itself the same way a business does. And there's not a, there has never been a great idea that was limiting itself first by whether it was profitable or not.
that comes afterwards, you know? And if that makes sense to you. So, but if you're, if you're, if you're saying to someone, something fucking happened there. That's working fine. Is it? Yeah, yeah. It sounds different. So, what's going to ask her now? If you're uh, saying to someone, like, what's the, if you're, like, the function of the arts, is it, are you saying to someone, it's to tap into, my fucking microphone's not open. Is your I can hear you. It fucking sounds totally different now. Whatever happened. If someone is asked, is questioning the value of the arts, are you saying to him, look, it's art, it's, it's art shows the potential of the human race or it taps into creativity that you're not getting from anywhere else in mm-hmm. society? Is, is that the, the kind of thing that, that you want people to see? I mean, yeah, it, that's a layer of it. I think um, on, a, on a kind of a, on a, on a, on a, on a say, let's say a surface level, just start there, which is, I think looking at something beautiful is important. And looking at something like, I mean, and I, 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 I'm in my circle of friends, they all know, like, I hate the word art and I hate the word artist. I, I find it because there's so much baggage with them. I mean, and there's a kind of, there is a sort of a image that the artist is kind of going around in a lace shirt, you know, with emotional problems in his, in his studio, you know, throwing paint at himself. And I think that that is a, I think that is a dangerous stereotype because, Art is a well-made table. Art is a, a beautiful sandwich. I mean, and I'm not, to, not to, I'm not trying to be facetious here, but I am saying that if you go on a surface level, it's important that we endeavor. And, and art is endeavor. It's an attempt to do something that's never been done before. That's the same as the science program in NASA. That's the same as every science, scientific exploration there has been. Is, is front, I, I always call it frontierism, which is like the belief that you can stake a claim in a, in a world that doesn't exist. And the arts is a kind of an image of that. Now, not all art is that. Not all art should have to be that. Some art can just be a, someone who likes painting a, a, a forest and it's like, looks like a million other paintings of forest. But then you ask yourself, it, then it has, beyond the extreme examples of perfection of art, there's a second layer of art that's really important, which is it's, Art is connecting. So that person picks a guitar up and plays three chords on it, not very well. Who am I to tell them that that's not valuable? Like that that attempt to express yourself, even if it's not like professional, is incredibly important for people who are trying to just get by day to day and do something something else for themselves. So art has a second function in a more community-based way, which is it allows you to just... uh, do something for the sake of doing it, for the enjoyment of it, for the expression of it, for the quiet moment that that person has for the hour sitting in a park, sketching something out. That's really important. And then there's a kind of a third layer to it then, which is like on the kind of philosophical level of art, which is actually it is about the expression of um, unknowns, the attempt to express unknowns and the stretching of the mind to do that and the stretching of the emotional kind of language to do that and using the the elements of our society that exist 
never forgetting that art and artistic endeavor are inherently linked with technological advancement. So now you see a lot of modern work isn't using projectors and 3D mapping and it's using kind of 3D printing and all this stuff. It, we're hand in hand with each other. Painting was hand in hand with the development of pigments and oil-based paints and petroleum and all this stuff. We've always been intrinsically linked and we're using these things that we have culturally to try and express a new idea or to connect two apparently disparate ideas. So it kind of provides bridges. And for me to explain to a person what the value of it is, in a way, I can point at the deadly painting and say, isn't that beautiful, right? Or I can say, don't you think a computer game is a gorgeous piece of art? Look at it. Like, look at all of the, you know, when you sit there and play FIFA, that's a piece of art, whether you like it or not. All that mod, the, the people who develop those things are creative, artistic people. Yes, they're wrapped up in a commercial uh, framework, but within that organization are just artists. But... That's kind of a, a more, that's a straightforward way. And another way, not to be, not to wax poetic about it, but it's, it's everything. Like it's, it's the, the idea to separate it out. It's so ridiculous to say, justify art. You're like, well, then I'll just take everything that it affects away and you'll be back in the cave. And what will we do? You'll be painting the ceiling of it. I mean, it's kind of just, it's a ludicrous proposition and it is exactly why we're in such a dangerous place in the world. To say, why is art valuable is to say, why is free thought valuable? And I don't know really, if you need to answer that question, then that, that shows how powerful our government has become, or, you know. If that sums it up really well, so we're basically saying that it has a massive value on a societal level and an intrinsic value for the individual and for communities as well. Yeah. You mentioned something about the powers that be and kind of wanting to break the link between mm. what we do on a day-to-day -day basis and the artistic or creative process or the arts. Why do you think that is? Well, I think what's what's occurred, and I mean, I would hold my hand up and say that, you know, I am I'm uh, very generously supported uh, quite a lot by the the Arts Council of Ireland, who are, I'm uh, hugely proud to be someone that they do that. So there's part of me that's within the system in that regard. Um, I've fought very hard outside the system when I've got nothing and at the moment when I, I'm inside a bit a bit. Um, so I just I think it's important that I put that on the table. I'm not like, you know, I'm not living in a, in a, in a, in a tent outside Cork, you know. Uh, I am I am a what we call a supported artist, which would some would see would be an institutionalised one. I don't think that at all, but there you go. Um, but I think what's happened and what's happening right now, in fact, is that the arts as an idea and the sciences, but I mean, let's talk about the arts because I mean, um, have been co-opted and pulled into metrics of financial concerns and they have lost their autonomy. So you're in a situation now culturally where you can even see it in our government's policy towards the arts. I mean, Ireland has the second lowest support of uh, arts per, G per head of GDP or per head of CAPTA. In GDP, we have in Europe, second lowest Ireland, a country that apparently claims the whole place is filled with poets and songwriters and, and, you know, and the government goes on television and says Ireland is a country of poets and the arts is so important. And yet we're the second lowest funding in Europe. And what's going on is the arts has become a sort of lubricant for tourism in this country. And that's because Ireland is really good as because we're an island we've had to become really good at selling ourselves because we, we need to bring people here so you become a kind of a product and the danger is the arts have become 
a, a product in Ireland and the pressure on them is they have to justify themselves in those terms. So can you bring tourists? How many people will see your show? Uh, will it travel? Will it travel to America? Will it, is it Irish? A question that I can't, I've been asked. So I've had many times people say to me, you know, well, the work you make is not Irish. And I'm like, how is it not Irish? I'm Irish. I make it in Ireland. Like what, 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 what are your, and then you realize, ah, there's a kind of a curation happening. They want it to be a certain thing, a certain type of Irishness because they know they can sell it. And so the arts has become trapped in that um, framework. And that's quite scary because the work I make, it, it, a lot of the time isn't something that would, if you put it on in Europe and you didn't say who made it, they wouldn't inherently see it as an Irish thing, you know, because it doesn't have a fiddle player up the front of it or, you know, not that I have anything wrong with that, but I'm just saying it, 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 it isn't that. Um, yet I'm fiercely, I'm, I'm a fiercely, Irish artist like that's a huge it's why I stage in a recession I mean I, I I see my work as fundamentally Irish and European but um that issue is a huge one at the moment in terms of the, the institutionalization of arts the kind of co-option of it into uh, financial sort of sectors justifying it through you know a tourism metrics you know that sort of financial accountability is it profitable is it not these questions that are, I welcome to a degree, but not when they start to curate who can and can't make. That's terrifying because then you're kind of going, you're just deciding what is valuable. And, and the value you're claiming it has is whether or not it can make you money. <laughs> you know, do you, you think that's something that's here to stay or is it cyclical? Is some, is some young band from some working class area in Dublin just going to come up out of the ashes and tear the thing to pieces and make us rethink how we see things? I think it's cyclical. I think everything's cyclical. Like, in fact, everything that I've ever made with my com with Eat My Noise or on my own is based on what I, what I call spiral systems. So I, I think everything in, in nature, everything in thought, everything in political is that they're inherently cyclical. They don't repeat completely in the way that the spiral moves forward but they do try to repeat because we are bound by a kind of a mixture of a fear of the future, a reverence for the past. And so we, we turn in on ourselves emotionally, intellectually, politically, culturally towards things we're slightly familiar with and slightly not. And that creates a kind of a cyclical forward motion. And so, yes, absolutely. We go through these kind of, it's like a pendulum. We go through periods of time where uh, we want it one way, then we want it another way. And, you know, um, but that doesn't mean that you shouldn't rage against it, you know, just because it'll go away in five or 10 years. Well, I'll be 45 then. What good fucking use is it to me then? You know, <laughs> so I, I, I'm, I'm just going to rage against it now. And it's that kind of the, the energy you put into raging against the presumption of a thing is where um, I think you find it's like a, you, you, it's like a, a, a furnace. That's where you find you burn away all the nonsense and you find what you really want to do. And so I think, yeah, it's cyclical. You can see the, you can see the systems in it, but that doesn't mean that they're not ridiculous, you know? So if you play that, if you play that out to the, the end course, you see if we become more and more land on, if, if say art becomes more land on the funding and the, mm. the people who give the funding are only going to give it to a certain amount of people mm. and then that burns off and then it kind of re restarts again and people mm -hmm. come up, how does, how does an artist 
work those two things. You've got the funding side of things and the commercial side, and then you've got the need to be fully immersed in the creative side of things, mm -hmm. which a lot of the time doesn't come with any funding. Mm -hmm. How do you play those two things off against each other? I mean, it, that's the question really of uh, being a full-time artist. You know, um, I think uh, with everything that I've just said, I will also say that I do not believe in the idea of selling out. I think that, that is the most insidious nonsense that I've ever heard. Um, you, the only way you can sell out is an, it's an internal thing. It's whether or not what you're doing makes you feel ill or not. And if you don't feel ill writing music for uh, kind of, uh, what are they called, infomercials, and that makes you feel expert, then you're not selling out. If you feel ill, uh, writing stuff for the National Symphony Orchestra because of the politics within that, whatever that may be, then you're selling out. There's no like line in the sand that says on this side you're selling out and this side you're not. I think you are entitled to pursue commercial stability in your work. And I think there is a really kind of silly hangover from like the 18th, 19th romantic era of artists where all artists were starving. And it was like, if you're not starving, then you're not making something valuable or it's not, you know, you have to, uh, if someone is paying you, you're immediately compromised. So you can't have that. And like, there's a part of me respects that at, that came from a time where the arts was owned by patrons. And so there was a, there was a rage against that, that where they were like, I won't be bought. I'm just going to do it no matter what the fuck happens. I respect, I'm not trying to mimic it or mock it. What I am saying that nowadays it is so hard to make money in the arts. Like it is almost impossible. And I mean, as close to impossible as any financial venture you'd ever get into, if you want to consider it one like that, that I think you have to have a commercial mind and a business mind. A friend of mine once said, to be a successful artist of any kind, you need to be 50% immersed in your, uh, lost in creativity and 50% lost in business. And I think that's the same for anyone who's trying to do anything of any worth. There's no shame in it. And we need to shake off, I always think, I get quite annoyed at certain artists who, th who would like frown on certain other artists who put a lot of time into networking or put a lot of time into their website or put a lot of, and they think, yeah, they're only getting it because of that. And I'm going, well, they're getting it partly because of that. But you're, just because you don't bother your arse to do that doesn't mean you're more legit or more authentic. It doesn't mean that. It means you don't respect yourself the same level they do. And yes, th that might mean the person who's put that time in might get an opportunity in something that you might be probably better at in reality, but you haven't bothered your arse. So why do you deserve it? So like, I think... Commerciality is a, I, I don't think it's a dirty word. It's only a dirty word if it swallows up your craft and you're doing things that, that you don't want to do. Then you have a problem. So how do you balance it? I think you remember that it's okay to take some jobs for work. That's okay. I do it like anybody else. There's no shame in a job. And then you, but you, you, you fiercely pursue the opportunities that aren't that. We're not going to see the rubber bandits coming out and singing a Justin Bieber song just because yeah. they're getting more money for it. Yeah, you won't. But you will see them do a show for RTE that I guarantee you they sat in a room, whether they like it or not, had to compromise massively on what they would like to say versus what they were allowed. That's a compromise. But they were paid well to do it and, and they got to say some things to an audience they wouldn't have got to say before. It's inherently compromise is a natural human thing. Like there's nothing, and to sell this idea that art is without compromise is nonsense. You're compromising if you reject 
the structures that be, the powers that be, then you're compromising the ability to make certain types of art. So you can't make a huge sculpture because you, you have no funding to do it. Um, equally, if you only want to make giant operas or whatever, then you're compromised because you can't express an idea without that metric behind it, that financial metric behind it. And so that's compromised. So you, you just try to find a way to, comp to allow compromise into your life in such a way that it doesn't distort what your central purpose is. And I think all you can do in that is, is I've sang, I mean, I've sang in wedding bands. Some people would, would frown on that and think that that's like, what? And I'm like, it's a job and it's not a bad job. And I've had fun doing it. Uh, did I want to do it for the rest of my life? No. Do I have friends who do it professionally all the time? Yes. Do I look down and then, of course I don't. Who, like, it's ridiculous. They're, they're just trying to survive. And I think you, you do that whenever way you can. But again, I mean, not to repeat myself, but as long as that doesn't, uh, as long as the compromises don't become such that you aren't doing what you want anymore. So I, I, I have a, I've, I always have this massive rant about people who are like anti-commerciality in the arts. I'm like, look, there's nothing wrong with something being built to sell itself. As long as it is not uh, disingenuous or lying or, uh, derivative if you're not copying something else to try and make a few bucks you know when you see like Riverdance comes out and that was legitimately a beautiful artistic act and then there's like 50 million of those now yeah as you go down the scale some of those are just really cynical commercial pro projects but like it doesn't mean they all are it doesn't mean Riverdance was you know it, and I just think that's important to remind ourselves that if something does well, it doesn't mean it's inherently compromised. You and know? to take a job, say a compromise, sort of a job that doesn't sit too far away from your core values can also give you the opportunity to do something else where you can do exactly Absolutely. what you want. And you learn so much. Like, I mean, genuinely, and I'm, I'm lucky now. I, I, I am say I'm quite lucky. I was very, I'm saying this being aware that I was very stubborn and I like, I, I didn't do any of this. I've only learned this as I got older. I used to be like, no way, you know, like, um, just gotta be pure, you know? And I, and I, so I, I, I learned this as I went along that you would start to meet these people who were say outside your, what, what you would have thought was, you know, pure art or whatever, like, and then you'd realize that they're like beautiful, creative, concerned people who have just slightly different uh, position on things. And you'd spend time working in that environment and you'd learn like so much about uh, how to, you know, run a project, how to respect, you know, large crews of, of employees, how to like collaborate in a way that can make bigger projects. Like most of the lessons I learned in terms of being able to pull off larger projects were with the more commercial projects. And I cannot thank those people enough for the opportunities they gave me to learn, for the opportunities they gave me to put, get my ego in check, you know, to, to start to actually see what is it I value why is it that this makes me feel uncomfortable? Why does this other type of art make me feel comfortable? I, you, you can only really reach those conclusions by confronting something you think you shouldn't be doing. And then you go, oh, it's not, it's not as bad as I thought, actually. These people are good people, you know. When people go to see a show, it's the member of the public walks up to the Cork Opera House and they're going to see mm -hmm. a show in there. They generally just see the person who's at the box office selling the tickets, mm -hmm. the person who shows them to the seat, 
and the people who are on the stage. Yeah. But there's a lot more to it than that. Can you talk us through a little bit about that? Yeah. I mean, I will say first and foremost to any venue that you, the face of your venue is your box office staff. And you would hear that a lot from, from venue managers, like that they are the bread and butter, you know, they are the, they're the people that the return customers would, you know, they're, they're the face of your company. So they're huge and they, and they almost it, without fail do amazing work. So I, I think it's really important to point that out. Um, the, like the work that goes into a show is, and I know this from my work, is that like, you know, my name is attached with things that are very big sometimes, like not always. And, or um, you get the credit directly because you are the person who conceived of the idea or you wrote the idea or you directed the idea. So yes, you've done the lion's share in terms of say, bringing the project into being inside your head. And then, but the reality is in, and I, I say, I think any artist worth their salt says the same thing. If you do anything beyond like solo work, and even at solo work, it's not really, it's the same. There is an, a huge team of people behind that. Like in a, in a small project, I mean, like take, uh, I'll take a big one, for instance. Look, I did a show called Prodigy last year with um, uh, the, uh, the Opera House. It was uh, uh, created by... Um, Alan Kennefick, who's from Project The Dance Troupe, and by Wayne Jordan, the director, and I was kind of a developing association with me. And we we were like the core team, if that's what we say. The, 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 the core three at the start. However, below that, there was like um, a fantastic lighting designer, Sinead. Uh, there was a fantastic, uh, like, uh, what, what do they call Dance captain, Dane. Then you go down into like the technical team run by Chris in the Opera House, the marketing department run by Pat Carey. You've got Eileen Gleason, the CEO, who was at most of the rehearsals. You've got the, the 20 or so dancers in the, in the production troupe, the designers, the stage designers, the tech crew, them like below, like the actual tech crew on the ground, the sound, the sound engineer at the time, Lawrence White, a uh, uh, close friend who passed away last year. And that's, that's, the first layer that like there was something like there's the band Moxie the lads are playing like I mean I'm, I'm obviously forgetting people now because I'm but like I remember working out there was something like 95 people involved in that show like 95 people and that is not probably including the box the front the, the box office staff I mean so add them in you're talking about 105 I mean it gets to a point where it's so ridiculous how many people are required to make these things happen that if you as a maker like say, like a lead artist, as they're called, don't have an awareness of that. You have to go home and really think about your ego. Like, I mean, it, it's, there is not, always remember, always, always remember, if you're ever at anything, and I mean anything, from a small gig in a bar, all the way through to some giant, like Beyonce touring show, the, there is probably uh, five times to 10 times more people required to make that happen than you are seeing. And that is um, a huge thing to take away from the idea of uh, collaboration and to not to hark back, but the idea of compromise is because you are inherently, if you're gonna work with other people, have, going to have to compromise. If you're, if you're going to be just a reasonable human being, you're gonna to have to compromise on some level. And um, I think you, you need to go, when you see a project, and I try to do this myself because I can be quite critical of things, you know, and when I see something and I think it's bad and I'm like, oh God. But I always go, no, but dude, remember, remember, remember. There's like five or 10 people put their time into this and they worked really hard at it. And actually it's, you're not seeing it because, you know, 
it's hidden. All those contributors are hidden. That's the beauty of like, I, the, the brilliant one I always try and mention is the idea that everyone worships someone like Beyonce, right? And, I, and I'm not to speak on Beyonce, Justin Bieber is another person worshipped for being these like consummate performers or Justin Timberlake or, you know, brilliant dancer, brilliant songwriter, brilliant performer. Oh, the show is amazing. And I'm going, do you have any concept how many people are working around someone like her or him to make it look like it's effortless? Like to make it look easy, like they always have the perfect clothes on. They always have the perfect choreography. They've always got the perfect video. They've always got the perfect song. They're always on the perfect stage. You think that's one person? I think it's a really dangerous thing to teach kids that, like to say to them, look how incredible this human being is because it's so intimidating to look at someone like that and go, I can never be that. And the reality is you can't be that unless there's a hundred other people helping you. And that's, I always say to everyone about the arts on that level, particularly performance, is I, I constantly fight against the image of these people being held up like godheads. They're not, they're just people. And it takes hundreds or thousands of people to make those people look so effortless. Like that really does highlight the importance of going to local shows and Absolutely. things like that, because you see the, you see what's happening. You, you see, see someone contribution. carrying the boxes in yeah. at the start of the show and someone comes on and gives everything you see or the raffle often. tickets or the gets putting people in their seats or the people that came in and, and cleaned the place up before you arrive or the people that stay on after and pack the stage down. I mean, the contribution, we know that on local levels, we see it because it's much more exposed. And I guess because it's on a more amateur level, there's not as much of a need to hide it. It's kind of left to be a little raw and a little, but actually that teaches you those lessons where you understand it's not the fellow who just happens to be singing the song. It's everyone that showed up and everyone that contributed, everyone that did the, like the, the raise the money, you know, it's like, it's so that's why I, I, I don't like the lie behind international performance because there was a time where we all knew that it wasn't the one person that did it. We, but marketing, the pressure of marketing has become such that it, it started to fabricate kind of like uh, perfect beings, like, like trying to make it look like Beyonce writes all her own music and does her own, her own choreography and does her own costume. And it's like, you're like, what are you talking about? Same with, and it's not just, I have to pick on her. I know she sometimes gets a hard time, but she just happens to be one of the, I think she's one of the best performers on the planet, like, you know, and I think, you know, she's almost untouchably brilliant, you know, but even at that inside her brilliance, there's no one that brilliant. And so I think we need to, it's why community art is so important is you need to tell your kids or you need to tell people who are starting, don't take in the pressure of something so perfectly presented. Remember that it takes so many people to make it look like that. And you can be one of those hundred people. I mean, like I'm, yeah, I get to do some of my work on my own, but a lot of my jobs are within companies to present a piece of work that I'm only a contributor to. And that's just as rewarding, you know? In Cork at the minute, what is the scene like for the arts? Um, I think it's uh, incredible. Um, w during the recession, I stayed here and the level of community spirit and support was was giant. I mean, I really, the, the things I got to do here, like full orchestra pieces and like mad, mad things just wouldn't have happened in Dublin. They wouldn't have happened in cities that weren't as financially devastated. Cork also has, and I'm not from Cork, I'm from Waterford, but Cork has a kind of a, a, a it's got a bit of a, 
a healthy chip on its shoulder. It kind of wants to make a point about its quality and about its its claim on its own individuality, um, which I respect to to a point. I think it also needs to get over itself and as well. All cities in Ireland need to get over themselves and realize that we're a tiny little country and we need to be all interlinked. Like we need to work together to be seen, you know. But I still think it Cork deserves a huge amount of credit for its sort of tenacity and its its self belief. And as a result, that manifests as like huge support. Like I've, my entire time in Cork, I have been lucky enough to work with artists well, way better than me. You know, I've been supported by city council, supported by Cork Midsummer, supported by the Cork Opera House, by the Everyman, by uh, Jesus, who else? I mean, the National Sculpture Factory. It, there's such an incredible spirit here. Um, the scene is incredibly vibrant, particularly musically which makes it hard to be noticed in the music scene here because there's so many brilliant people around. I mean, I live with and hang around with musicians that are just so m much better than I am, you know? And it's a, so it's a really exciting place to live in that regard. Who are the bands or musicians that are making waves at the minute? Um, I guess this, the, the, my answer to that would be personal rather than, but I, I'll tell you the ones I think are worth looking at. Uh, there's a group of musicians called uh, Notify, who um, are kind of half local, who are uh, kind of made up of, originally were made up of kind of two different groups, um, but uh, they're incredible. They're doing some, they're, I think they're gonna make some serious waves in the kind of the contemporary Irish trad scene. Um, I think uh, they're, let me think who else. I'm trying to think about, Musically, I'm such a God. I'm such, you get lost in your own work. Talos are definitely killing it. Talos are killing it. Yeah, and uh, and I actually, what am I doing? I work with them for God's sake. Um, Talos are killing it, and they're, they're killing it because, the, in fairness to them, um, or him really, but they, you know them now. It is them now. Uh, they've stayed true to uh, sound, and they. I think people need to not forget that, like two or three years ago, they were playing to empty rooms, like. And nobody gave a shit. Well, they've got something like five or six million downloads on yeah. Spotify at the minute. And like, and that's just because the own is a works very hard, like primarily. And I would say, don't. I mean, I, I've done a bit of um, musical direction for them, and don't be fooled by any of that. Own works like a dog, like to make that happen. He's put his own time, money, effort, risk into it. He's risked his career doing it. Um, and they deserve it. The band themselves are like brothers. They know each other for years. They have a huge spirit together. They look after each other. They protect each other. Um, there's a reason why they're doing well, you know, and their stuff's very good. His voice is gorgeous. The lyrics are beautiful. The music's ethereal and, and it's very of the time. It's tied up in that kind of Icelandic image thing, you know. They're, they deserve, and they're good people. If you meet them, there's no bullshit with them. You know, they're just trying to, they're trying to work. They're trying to get better every day. So Talos are really great. Yeah. Um, I think the Altered Hours are brilliant. If you, if you get a chance to see them, I think they're like, uh, they're just such a, <laughs> such an interesting gang, uh, making some really, really interesting work. There's like, uh, there's outside of that sphere, there's someone like Gemma Suger, who's like kind of coming from the other side, the jazz pop side. She's slaying it. Like, you know, she's really representing the, the city in a really natural and, uh, She's she's 
in a really interesting way, she's challenging the diva stereotype, I think. And she's showing, she's showing the humanity of what it takes to, the work it takes to put into a voice like that and an image like that. And I think it's really beautiful for her to deconstruct all of that, that kind of nonsense that surrounds that. And she's just showing it bare and saying, look, it just takes, you got to work, you got to practice, you got to get up early and go to bed late. If you want to do well at anything, that's what it takes. And, and not to get into Leo Vradker nonsense about, I only like people to get up early, but yeah. like, that, so she's doing really well for the scene. Um, John O'Brien, if you, if you know, the opera director and composer, he's absolutely killing it this year. And he's putting, he, him, he's put Cork on the map in terms of opera with, with the Cork Operatic Society uh, and on the Everyman. And he's writing some great stuff now. And that really is kind of going to shape our Cork's presentation as a musical center. Uh, music's really, I mean, I'm not, a hu I'm not hugely in the band scene, if I'm honest, I used to be. But once I got into more like composition or event stuff, you kind of drift away from it. Like they're not from Cork, but I have a, a strong connection with Hermitage Green and they sold out the Opera House last week and they put on That's an unbelievable amazing. show. They sold out the Opera House. Yeah. That's brilliant. I mean, like, I love those stories, you know, like there's, um, there's a sub trio as well who are like a jazz group um, that are fronted by Cormac McCarthy um, and a bass player Owen Walsh and a drummer Davy Ryan. They're like, I mean three of the best musicians you'll ever, I mean, you'll ever get to meet in person. You know I mean? That's the reality of that. And they're living in the city, you know? Um, there's just, I mean, it's kind of wild what's going on really, you know? And, and it's not one genre. Uh, John Bleck is doing brilliantly as well. You know, the brilliant songwriter from Cork. Um, is he from Cork? He's definitely based here. Uh, Marlene Enright. Um, you know, I mean, like, Jesus, you could just list them off, list them off. Like, and they're all, weirdly, some of them are friends. Some of them aren't friends. They're just people I, I know professionally. But none of the, but there's such a, 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 a they're, they're not, we're not all one genre. Like, it's changed. There was a time where everyone was a singer-songwriter. It's kind of gone now. There's a much more rich and complex thing going on. And it's, you just don't know who's going to leap out. And you being know? an outsider from Cork as well, I sort of feel like it's, big enough for lots of different people to be in there doing loads of different things mm. but it's also that small that nearly everybody knows each other once you're there for a while yeah and that intimacy creates community now it can also have the opposite effect and it can create competition and uh, i wouldn't i think i would be it would be a bare-faced lie to say i i don't feel the pressure of that from my work i know sometimes eat my noise or in, in to a degree my work would be seen like people would think you're like doing brilliantly or you're massively successful you're rolling around in euros in your house like whereas i'm like jesus like i panic about my rent every month like everyone else you know um there is a, a limited pot of money and a limited pot of opportunities and so of course there is a beautiful community to it there is you're absolutely right in saying there's enough space that people can kind of create what they essentially want but um at the same time you you once you get to a certain point and I, I think most cork artists would agree with me in this not maybe they wouldn't but you get to a certain point where you're like i need to start taking this outside of here because uh there's so many in fairness to the community there's only so many times they can watch you play you know like if you're if you're if you've got a set a music set you can only really do it you know, five, six times a year in a city. Other than that, like people just, they don't want to, you know, people like want to see new stuff. So at the same time, you see, like I was at a, a Talos and Electric Picnic and they had a, an unbelievable crowd up there, mm. not from Cork. 
Yeah. So they do. They do. We're exporting for sure. We are, and and I think we're we're getting braver with that export. There's a lot of people involved in making that happen. You know, St. Luke's, the Opera House. You know, again to make a point that it's not. No offense to own French, and I know he would agree with me on this. Is he knows the reason he's doing that is not just because he wrote deadly songs. I mean, like there's loads of that in the industry. What it is, is we also have an incredible support network of people who are trying to push us. We're, you know, venues that are taking risks on gigs. Um, St. Luke's, you know, who just came in, like they, they take risks with you when they put you on. They, like, they don't know. They know, and that's, I don't think you can ever underestimate how supportive that is. How the reason why you get to do bigger venues is because someone looks at you and they see that you're like, you know, you're at 30% of your career and they offer you 50, a 50% opportunity and you maybe get to 45, but then you're at 45%. And those, those kind of things, if, if that's the only way I can describe it as percentages are not the best example, but, but you get what I'm saying. And I, so you're, it's about everyone coming together, venues, arts councils, city councils, uh, local artists. And we just, I, I firmly believe this. And, and I've, I've said this for my entire time working in the arts. I don't believe, um, that having lots of people competing means that there's the the scene is uh, inherently damaging itself. I think if one person does well, everyone does well with them. I think we lift each other up. I really, really believe in that, and I and I uh, and I felt the effects of that as a venue starts to do better and they have the opportunity to offer you work and then you put your heart and soul into the venue and the venue does a little bit better again and then another venue gets to do better and then there's trust built with the audience and then they start coming to more work more money's changing hands the obviously if we all work with each other i think it's a very dangerous and nasty place if you find yourself as as any sort of maker where you're angry at other people doing well i think you really need to reevaluate and like and participate don't like you know don't throw tomatoes at it you know you're a Waterford man in Cork and <laughs> arts related or non-arts related what's your favorite thing about living in Cork the size of it if I mean and that's a, a much deeper thing than just the fact that it's easy to walk around uh, there's a ease in Cork I find that is also um married with the idea that there's space to do different things and see different things I love the style of life I have here. Like I just get to live in a nice house. I have good friends. There's some great food here. Food here is amazing. Like, you know, the coffee scene's amazing. You know, where do you go? Where do I go for coffee? Uh, the two best places in the city, uh, filter and Soma. I mean, end of story, you know, not, not to cut anyone else out, but they are the two best places in the city. Um, obsessed with both of them. I'm a old, uh, I actually stopped drinking coffee for six months. And I just used to go back to them and just sit there and drink green tea and just be sad. <laughs> I couldn't have the coffee, you know. <laughs> I'm throwing alchemy in the mixer as well. Oh, and alchemy, sorry. Alchemy's great up on the, on the top of the hill. It's a brilliant coffee place as well, yeah, yeah. And food? Food, uh, the Rocketman. Um, I would eat in... I'm, I'm going to totally slay my image of myself now. I love Boojum. Don't care. Burrito bowl all the way. Caitlin uh, from Bujum trains in Ackley. Yeah. We can't say anything bad about Bujum. Bujum is 
is is a solid eat and, and I, started in Belfast you did it yeah 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 um uh kind of higher end stuff then uh obviously cafe parties was incredible I go to the key co-op a lot I tried to I tried to like I, I will never be a vegetarian or, or a vegan, but I try to be a vegan one day a week and a vegetarian two or three days a week. Um, and then I just try and eat meat the other days. Uh, who am I leaving out? I mean, there's so much food in the city at the moment. It's kind of hard to even think about it. I'm going to hit you with a few more questions. You've been very good to talk to us so far and I don't want to keep you for too long. So you can take as long or as short to answer these ones as you want. If you were going to change one thing about Cork, what would it be? Uh, if I was going to change one thing, um, I would, and this is kind of controversial, but I would, I would like it to, um, engage more with the national conversation, I think. Uh, and by that, I mean, before I get shot for saying it is that I think there is pride has a fall, I think. And I think that there's a, there is an incredible spirit in Cork but you, like all of those things, you have to be careful not to let it run into an arrogance or, or a kind of a rejection of, you, you know, where you say, you know, we're a lone star, lone star state or whatever, you know. It, the rebel in us shouldn't mean that we, we, we feel the need to rebel all the time. And so I, I would love Cork to, which I think it's starting to do, but I think to, to start to part, to want to be part of as well as outside of. I think that's the best way I can explain it. If you were able to sit down and have a conversation with the 10 years younger version of yourself, what would you say to yourself? Jesus Christ, go to therapy sooner. I think that'd be the first thing you'd say. <laughs> uh, what would I say? I'd say um, none of this is a waste of time. I think that'd be the, the most powerful realization I've had has only really occurred in the last two or three years. And that uh, you look back on your life and you 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 can get lost in in regret about not having picked the perfect path and yes there are times you've done stupid things and yes there are times where you probably could have been a little bit cleverer about or be a bit more ergonomic um but actually everything i have been part of biochem working in a suit shop working in a bar have manifest beautiful experiences in my life. I met some of my most, you know, important girlfriends in those situations. I learned to make art a different way to a lot of people because of the fact I did biochem. Like they they form you. So I would just say, I think I would like all people that age to take the pressure off themselves a little bit. We are are expected to be too much too soon. And And I know that's weird because our parents got jobs at 20 and just went out and had kids and had houses and we think we're all wasting time but actually I think if you speak to a lot of more down to earth 50 something 60 somethings they'll tell you they can see there's more pressure on us than there was in them there was more structures for them you just got a job and then you had money and you got to do there was less uh, existential crisis our generation has been has been told it can be anything and with that comes a terrifying pressure that you are expected to be something I think that's a very important message for people to understand. Mm-hmm. Who is a person who's an inspiration to you and why? Who's a person who's an inspiration to me? Hmm. I'm trying to think of who I've been recently. See, I, you've caught me at a very interesting time. I just came away from a residency in Dublin in the Dublin Theatre Festival, which is called Next Stage. And 
there was 15 artists that were picked to do it and we kind of it was like living in a commune you know for like three weeks where we we hung out every day and we talked every day and we went to see work every day and we kind of couldn't make a decision unless someone in the group was like are we all going to do it together and not I, I don't want to sidestep the question but like genuinely the inspiration I have at the moment is, is those 15 people like um I I was massively shook and shaken by uh, their dedication, their ethic, their intelligence, their passion, their fragility, their in, you know their vulnerability in sharing their position, um, and these people are people who all came from different careers. You know, there's an idea that the artist is someone who never bothered to try something else. I, I'm finding more often it's the other way around. Is they did try something else and then they kind of gave up on it because they didn't want to do it. But all of them could have been successful in other ways, and they've chosen to come back to the arts because there's something in them that that is it's it's necessary or maybe and i have i'm still trying to unpack uh the advice i've gotten the the answers they they gave me the questions that were posed and like hammered out so i kind of i'm a very one of the things i i am most lucky in in my life is i spend a lot of time around inspirational people like it's kind of my bread and butter like every time i go to a new company or project, I meet someone who's just mind blowing. And I kind of, I always feel very, uh, uh, that that is an absolute luxury I have. It's hard for me to name one because I could just start rattling off at like the last 10 people I've met. <laughs> you know what I mean? You can work with or collaborate with any person, past or present or band. Who is it? It would have to be Bowie. It would have to be Bowie. I, I, I just, uh, um, I worked with a, a man recently called Enda Walsh, who's a kind of a fairly famous Irish writer. And he had just done a uh, opera with Bowie before he passed away called Lazarus. And we were doing a week long, and I, I really hope he listens in to this because I want him to know this. Uh, uh, we were doing a week long kind of a thing called the development week where you, you get together and you hash out the, the ideas for this piece of theatre. It was with Kirk Durker, Pacquiao and... Uh, Finn Flynn's company and for the full six days I had to stop myself asking him about Bowie like I was like sitting there going I have to ask him I have to ask him what it was like but then I was like I bet you everyone has been asking him what it's like and I said I bet you he's really upset about the fact the guy's just passed away you know but like he's one of those people who whether you liked the music or whether you didn't it doesn't matter the man is like indelibly pressed on your skin you know um I think it's it's a it's just one of those one of those characters who just changed the world, you know. Um, and 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 then as someone who's alive, it'd have to be Bjork because she's just the uh, cleverest, coolest, freest, uh, most influential human being in the arts. I think in the world, for sure. She's she's doing more for um, the idea of the crossovers in art into science into architecture like as a pop figure i'm not saying she equally is someone who has 100 people working for her or whatever but she is so singular and so talented and so like i don't think people realize she did most of the arrangements on her albums she does most of the production herself you know she is so un 
unbelievably gifted that like you kind of doubt her you kind of go ah you can't be serious she's not doing all that so if I would if I was to meet her I'd probably collapse on the floor I just think <laughs> I'd just be a puddle of, of a babbling man you know she might hear this <laughs> yeah if you're out there Bjork anytime <laughs> we'll put your contact details in the show notes <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah do you have a favorite book uh do I have a favorite book I um I do, and it's incredibly pretentious, but I'm going to say it anyway, so you can all judge me all you want. It's a book called Godel Escher Bach, The Eternal Golden Braid. It's definitely, it's a book I still don't fully understand, but um, every time I've opened it and read it, it's changed me some way, some weird way where you just go, oh my God, what? So that, um, in terms of kind of crossovers of science and art, and then like, in terms of just a good read, the book I remember the most um, is a book by a unfortunately quite controversial writer now but i i want, don't want to get into that um a, a book called ender's game which uh was you could read in an, in a day and a half and it taught me what um i mean it's a sci-fi book but it taught me what uh true leadership is that's actually what i think it, it taught me that you you lead people by um them loving you rather than fearing you you know this sounds very weird but like it is it's a beautiful book have you got an inspirational quote or little motto that you can share with us do you have that uh work i i, I remember one time seeing a, a gaa player who had the word ober written on his arm and i remember thinking uh i didn't quite get it it doesn't sound ridiculous I've, I've always worked but i didn't i didn't realize how powerful a word that is it and work doesn't mean don't enjoy i think people confuse like that work is somehow a not not an enjoyable thing i think it's kind of i believe in graft and i, I it's a brilliant thing recently conor mcgregor said he's like he doesn't believe in talent and i i absolutely concur with that i think um i just think rigor and work so i would just say just become okay with working that's not a very inspirational quote that is it is but it's like, good it's good <laughs> What have you got coming up in the next year or so? Um, I'm very lucky at the moment. I got some wonderful news as of two days ago. So I've been nationally funded by the Arts Council for a project I'm going to be doing that's provisionally titled In Clouds, which is going to be the headline uh, show for the Midsummer Festival in association with the Triscoll's anniversary celebration and the National Sculpture Factory, which is going to be uh, a music theatre piece, not a musical, but music theatre, which is theatre where music is a central uh, concern. Uh, it's just going to be beautiful music with a absolutely incredible dancer, Stephanie Defray, with a wonderfully talented group called Tanta Acquire and written by myself and one of the best musicians in the country at the moment, Michael Gallen. Um, and that's coming up in June. I have potentially a few uh, shows with the Northern Irish company called Prime Cut coming up in January and February. Um, I am going to be doing a few, uh, quite a big, very thing. I, uh, it's a secret, but a very big project in July, uh, which will take up most of my time for about uh, two or three months, um, which is another uh, theatre piece, um, a very, very impressive one, which I'm very excited to do. Uh, and I have a few films coming up with a company called Epic. So I'm doing a couple of short films and, um, so like, like enough to keep me busy. It all sounds like a lot. It's, I still need more in order to pay my rent, but that's enough for me to concern myself with right now. I'm also doing a residency with the National Sculpture Factory. Um, I'm trying to learn how to be a better musician through visual arts. Um, 
And so like all of that is kind of eats up all my time. So I know people can go and check out what you've been up to in the past and probably mm-hmm. what you're going to be doing in the future on your website, peterpower.ie. Mm-hmm. What other ways are there to let people contact you or follow uh, what you're that's, doing? That's definitely the main one. Um, also, I have a Facebook page, Peter Power Music. I have an Instagram where I share, actually at the moment, share all of my paintings. I started painting a couple of months ago. And by the way, everybody, 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 everybody should paint. I, I don't care if you're crap at it or you're brilliant at it. I don't know. It's like the way everybody started cooking recently and, and they've realized cooking is really good for you. Painting is really good for you. I didn't know this. I like got to my 30s without realizing and then started painting. So on my Instagram account, which is Peter Per Music as well, you'll see some of my attempts at painting. I make no uh, pretense that I, I, I'm, some of them are brilliant, some of them are horrendous, but I share all of them nonetheless. Um, uh, so that's my Instagram, my Facebook. I have a Twitter handle called Depoir. Um, which you find me there where I more than not was ranting about something political. Uh, and then th- that's it really. I mean, I, I try to keep everything central on my Facebook or my, my website just to make it easy for people, you know. So congratulations on your recent uh, funding. Thank you very much. And thank you very much for spending the time with us today and good luck for the next bit of time that's upcoming in all your projects. Cheers, you're a gent. Catch you soon. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the latest episode of the Rebel Matters podcast and a special thank you to Peter for taking the time out of his schedule to sit down with me. As promised, I'm going to leave you with Kneecap's very first release that's called Kjarta. Kneecap are the world's first Irish language rap band and consist of Mowgli Bap, who happens to be my youngest brother, Makara and DJ Provi. You can check them out on Facebook, YouTube and Instagram. For this song, Kneecap recently picked up awards for Best Video and Best Newcomers at the annual Nose Music Awards. Before I put it on, I have to add a brief public safety notice. It's explicit, it has references to drugs, sexual content, violence and general misbehaviour, so this would be a good time to cover the ears of any young Gilgors that are within earshot of this episode. This song has about 300,000 views so far and has been banned from RTE. It's not banned from the Rebel Matters podcast though, so here we go. Fuck me, me I come in a bastardy Cardu in a walla, got a mulla, kiss a TV stee Chance be, go away, he should my walla, MD Murder culture and knock the snail, fuck a ribbon, are you see? It's gone down, to miss or beach, like all she So this niche, I reach it so reach, just need Stop me, mega mudgy, murna, suffer him, she Says for my mala more cat, and none Neil, of my keys fucking ass up, London, Sean, a fucking joke Tell me a geary of egg and kosher, laddie, give her a couple of yolks Get down a couple of lean, a wind and food or mean coke It's Chucky, Jerry, now he has been with her fatty golden smoke my rug, they're earning a new It's Virginia, a VSC slash You've actually no soul Martin, I'm up and more a mirror Satora, our mune bay locked my gabri Satora, my home C-E-I-R-T-I It's come along so fuck We ain't got a Do jean last It's a Misha Roe cast And the FK2 Misha In my house we roll out a C-E-I-R-T-I It's come along so fuck We ain't got a Do jean last It's a Misha Roe cast And the FK2 Misha In my house we roll out a Sean Cusle Balaclava is better shield or shield as the acne she tata Tangier is far and near her fell first year ugging the fata Coke speed ease August Mom Marijuana It chopped the stock of Q and Freed Slip Chikanamara It kosher up the tanky winky Yogashima's bara They stop a moon gave root Freed's Gaji and Yarak Jilam Sneeze Lid the Wamu The Wak is the Hara And Nick and Asmalay and the Sira are of Alcara Neil Ain Hara Nakamajon Freelaher 
Dara Cocky Ocus Fu Wine Tikar Excrescing a hatch or what hell of a severance in a Johnny Sneesh wine the real DTG car so gotcha and this August Johnny Miss Jaffer Martin Misha Roast them and this shop we lard It's been me to go go my jean the Rona Mac and Ree Cause fuck the real hell take RTE C E R R T I It's coming up so fuck we in Garda Eugene last at a Misha Rocast and the Yaki to Misha and my house we roll out C E R R T I It's coming up so fuck we in Garda Young man, we caught you damaging public property And you are coming to the station so we can talk properly The two eggs, the kneecap was coming into chop. Bear my Facebook to walk, her egg wanker like fuck. Extrattles the man on her to the euro for fluff. Kick torch, gladi the da, her rug is male on knock. Marla Tamil, and this time I asked my viewer. Johnny Misha evoked the chuggers to us, core could be. Then a V, Marcus did the heel. Bresham ah and real, shock is fucking kill the kill. C E R T I, it's coming up so fuck, we in Garda. Eugene last at a Misha Rocast, and the Yaki to Misha in my house, we roll out the C E R T I. It's coming up so fuck we ain't got a Do jean last at the Misha Rocast And the Yaki to Misha in my house you roll out the C-E-I-R-T-I It's coming up so fuck we ain't got a Do jean last at the Misha Rocast And the Yaki to Misha in my house you roll out the C-E-I-R-T-I It's coming up so fuck we ain't got a Do jean last at the Misha Rocast And the Yaki to Misha in my house you roll out the C-E-I-R-T-I It's coming up so fuck we ain't got a if you enjoyed this show, please share it on your social media and with your friends and give us a five star rating and review on iTunes. This helps big time with the ongoing progress here at Rebel Matters. Don't forget to check out the rest of the episodes on Ackley.ie. And if you're in the market for some top drawer personal training, book a complimentary consultation and we'll help you achieve whatever goal it is you have in mind. This month, we're hosting our regular book club meeting on Saturday the 24th of February at 12pm at Ackley and our next Lone Moor long table lunch is on Saturday the 10th of March at 1pm. Check out ackley.ie for more information about how to get involved there. As usual, the music for the podcast is by the band Kayla and the track used is Cardinal Knowledge, one of my favourite Kayla tunes. Check them out at kayla.ie, K-I-L-A.ie. James Eid looked after the editing of the podcast today. Show notes for the episode were compiled by Adam Walsh. And if you're listening to this episode on YouTube, the video was created by Peter Heffernan. Good day and Akara, Kenny Fury.